So if you have your Bible, please turn to the book of Luke. We're going to be looking at the very end of Luke chapter 20 into the beginning of Luke chapter 21. Um, Jesus is in Jerusalem. This is in Holy Week, leading up to his crucifixion, his betrayal, his death, his resurrection. And if you look at the, this passage, uh, Luke 20, beginning in verse 41, you'll see that the, the text that we're going to be looking at today actually has three sections. Uh, verse 41 to 44, Jesus is talking to some of the religious leaders about the interpretation of Psalm 110. If you were here for our Christmas Eve service, we actually studied Psalm 110 and looked at this text in detail. So we aren't going to focus as much on verse 41 to verse 44. Um, if you want to go back and listen to our Christmas Eve service on YouTube, you can get more in depth on the, the discussion of what Jesus is, is talking about when he brings up this Old Testament psalm and his identity as the, the Messiah. But we're going to be focusing primarily on verse 40 to verse 4 of chapter 21. But again, I'll, I'll read the whole text. And if you don't have your Bible with you, um, it's printed in your bulletin. You can also get it on your phone if you have any Bible apps, or you can Google the passage, and it will come up as well. So again, Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 41. And Jesus said to them, How can they say that Christ, that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is it that he is his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, as we look at the example of a widow giving all that she has to live on, Lord, we want to give all of ourselves to you. Um, but, Lord, we want to hold out parts of our own heart away from you. Uh, we want to read your scripture on our own terms rather than your word reading us, Lord. And it is your word that searches our hearts, that, that we're not sitting over the word, we're sitting under the word. We're not the one shaping what this says, but, Lord, we want you to shape us. So please guard me against saying anything that is, that is false, uh, Lord, please guard us against taking it and applying it in a way that is not true to the text. 
Um, but Lord, as we understand it, let us live it in truth. Um, and so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you go to the doctor and the doctor says, you have cancer. But instead of then listening to the doctor's diagnosis, you ignore it and you act as if you are completely fine. There's nothing wrong with you. You tell all of your, your friends and your family that you're in perfect health. But despite the fact that, that you ignore what's going on inside of your body, it's still there and the cancer is still growing. And really, every single one of us has a spiritual cancer in our hearts. And that the spiritual cancer in our hearts is sin, where we want to do things our way rather than God's way, where we don't love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't love our, our neighbor as ourselves. And when we read scripture, we hear the, the diagnosis of this spiritual cancer. We hear all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We hear none is righteous, no, not one. We hear the thoughts of their heart were only evil continually. But we hear the diagnosis of our true spiritual condition, the seriousness of the problem, but then we're so often prone to ignore the diagnosis. Uh, we act like we are completely spiritually healthy, like we are good people on our own terms. We're the, the good religious moral people. That we make the, these bold professions of religion, but then in reality, the practice of our religion in day-to-day -day life, especially in our private life when no one's looking, it doesn't line up to the things that we profess, the things that we, we say we believe about God and how we ought to live. And then we think about how serious this spiritual condition is. J.C. Ryle says that no sin seems to be regarded by Christ as more sinful than hypocrisy. None certainly drew forth from his lips such frequent, strong, and withering condemnation during the whole course of his ministry. And that's true. As you read the Gospels, Jesus always comes down the hardest on hypocrisy among religious people who pretended to be good, pretended to be religious, but then denied it in their lives and in their hearts. And so what we see here in this text is Jesus warning his disciples about the danger of hypocrisy, but also setting forth, forth this example of sincerity. And so look again at verse 45. It says that in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, so you can see that Jesus, as he's speaking in the temple, is addressing his disciples, but this is not a side private conversation that everyone is listening, and he's calling out, a group of people. He says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And so Jesus here is saying, Beware of the scribes. And in a way that that term scribe in English can be misleading because we think of a scribe as somebody who just copies books. But these weren't just copyists who wrote things down, but the scribes were the 
experts, the, the experts in religious law, the experts, the, the theologians, the people who, who knew and understood the traditions of Israel and, and taught it to the people. Jesus is saying then, beware of your religious expert. Beware of your class of trained theologians. Beware of your religious scholars in Israel. And you say, well, why? Why would he warn them so strongly against the religious experts of Israel? And the reason is that these supposed experts were hypocritical. It says that they, they loved the external show of religion. They walked around in these long robes. They loved the acclaim of religion, that they sought greetings in the, the marketplace, and, and they loved the, the status of religion, that they wanted the best seats in the synagogues, the best seat at feasts. They wanted to be, to be honored and respected. But even as they're seeking this external show of, of religion, of acclaim, of status, it says that they were devouring widows' houses. And that's such a strong way to put it, devouring. They're, they're eating up the houses of widows, the most vulnerable in their society. And Jesus doesn't say how they devoured the widows' houses. Maybe as some of the influential leaders, they had a part in the distribution of the estates when someone died and left a widow, and maybe they were skimming off the top for themselves. But whatever they were doing, they were oppressing the poor, the widow, the vulnerable, the very people that they were tasked by God to care for. And he says they were, they were devouring widows' houses while making a pretense of prayers. And it's not that you can make, can't make long prayers, but it was the fact that, that the long prayers, what everybody thought of them on the outside, didn't actually line up to what was going on in the inside. And that's why, speaking of these the same people, in Matthew 11, Jesus says that the scribes, and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. And, and that's what, we use that phrase, practice what you preach. And that's what they didn't do. He says, do what they say, not what they do, because these are hypocritical religious leaders. And so as we re reflect on what is hypocrisy at its root, that, that hypocrisy is any place where our profession of religion doesn't actually line up to our practice of religion, where we don't practice what we preach. And you say, well, what does that, does that look like? And here are some examples. That publicly you seem content. People would say, wow, that person's life looks really good. They seem really happy all the time. But then privately, they spend more time than they should scrolling through their phone on social media, comparing their lives to others in envy. Or publicly, somebody decries the immorality of the culture and talks about biblical values, but then secretly dabbles in internet pornography. Publicly, somebody says, I have it all together. And that's what people say. Wow, that person has it all together. But then privately, they struggle with a, a drinking problem, and they're not facing it. Or publicly, they would look and say, wow, this person is a great husband. But then privately, there are outbursts of uncontrolled anger. 
publicly, someone talks about the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture, that the Bible is, is truthful. But again, privately, in their lives, there, there's no sense of, of reading the Word or sitting under the Word or submitting to the Word. Or publicly, someone prays in, in church, maybe even prays publicly out loud. But then in reality, privately, their home is devoid of prayer. There's no regular habit and practice of prayer. Or somebody publicly talks about the importance of marriage. But then at their work, they're cultivating a slow, inappropriate connection with someone. Or somebody says that, that, that people are, are created in the image of God, that everyone has dignity, but then they harbor anger and bitterness at neighbors. Or publicly, people say that the kingdom of God is what matters. But really, if you look at that, where they spend their time on their, their phone or what they read or what they think about, that all they do is think about politics, that, that there's so little time actually reflecting on the things of God. Or publicly, somebody says that racism is a sin. But then, in reality, they won't invite people who are different into their lives. They don't want to associate with people who are, who are different in final analysis. Or people say that the, the church should be a hospital for sinners. But then they're really surprised when they see sin among believers. And so they, they plan to leave the church or to leave institutional religion or publicly somebody says that Jesus is the only way to God and that salvation is through faith in Christ. But then there's no interest to share faith with unsaved friends or family or neighbors. And the, the list could keep going on and on. But as I, as I walk through that, I think that we can all see this, this root of hypocrisy in our heart. That every single person, to one degree or another, struggles with hypocrisy. And it's a sin that is especially prevalent, especially pronounced among the religious, among those who are in church, because it's any place where our profession of religion doesn't line up to our practice of religion. And so it's possible for somebody to be irreligious and very sincere and very honest because they are honest in how they are actually irreligious. And that's why the, the Puritan... Thomas Watson says, What good will it do a man when he is in hell that others think that he has gone to heaven? Oh, beware of this. Counterfeit piety is double iniquity. And, and why does he call it double iniquity? Because, because there's a double sin in hypocrisy. Because with sin, you're, you're rebelling against God you're denying the truth of God. But then when we practice hypocrisy, that we actually add insult to injury because then we're lying about what is actually going on in our hearts. And so it's the sin and the lie to cover up the sin. And that's what we do when we practice hypocrisy. And that's also why Jesus comes down so strongly and so hard against hypocrisy throughout his ministry. And in our text, he says that 
those who practice this hypocrisy will receive the greater condemnation in verse 47. And you look at that, the greater condemnation. That all sins are heinous, all sins bring death, that the wages of sin is death. But as you read scripture, there are some sins that are treated by the Lord as more heinous than others. And one of the sins at the top of the list of heinous sins is the sin of hypocrisy, where our profession of religion does not line up to our practice of religion. That's why James, in his letter in the New Testament, says that not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that, that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That pastors and religious teachers don't get a place in the front of the line to the way of heaven. That the, the deepest pits of hell will be reserved for pastors and teachers who know the word of God and taught the word of God to others, but then denied it in their lives. And that's a sobering thing for me to think about as a pastor who every week studies the word of God, who preaches the word of God. Am I doing it in hypocrisy? And if so, Jesus says that I, I will receive the greater condemnation, that those who teach and do not do will be judged with greater strictness. And I mentioned how Jesus was, was so harsh against hypocrites, but, but think of how gentle he was with the, the people who, the, the prostitutes, the, the sinners, the, the tax collectors, the people that were considered uh, bad in society. But then remember back in Luke chapter 11, we looked at this many months ago, chap Luke chapter 11, verse 39, Jesus says to these religious leaders, he says, now Pharisees, you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things are, that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, but neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, that people walk over them without knowing it. It's, again, such strong language. He's saying, you religious teachers of Israel who teach but don't practice, that you are unmarked graves, full of dead man's bones, and people walk over you and, and don't know it. And that's why John Owen says that, that we must be killing sin or sin will be killing us. And that is especially true with hypocrisy. That if we let hypocrisy grow and fester over time, eventually the fruit of it is death. And so as you look at your own life today, the big sins, the, the small sins, the, the things that, that where you shelter in your life out of view of others, you might say, this isn't a big deal. It's a private vice. What doesn't hurt anybody is, is fine. What people don't know doesn't hurt them. But what we see in Scripture is that what people don't know will hurt you, and it will hurt them in the end because 
eventually it brings death. It brings the greater condemnation that those who teach but don't practice will be judged with the greater strictness. And that's why the, the same Thomas Watson I mentioned earlier said this. He says, Christian, if you mourn for hypocrisy, and, and my prayer is that we would all mourn for the hypocrisy that is in our heart. He says, yet find this sin so potent that you cannot get mastery of it. And that is so often the case where it's so potent, it's so strong, the draw is, is so alluring that we can't master it. He says then, if you can't get mastery of it, go to Christ. Beg of him that he would exercise his kingly office in your soul, that he would subdue this sin and put it under the yoke. And that's right, that when we see this hypocrisy in our own hearts and our own lives, that the response is, is not to try to deal with it on our own, but to take it to Christ, to lay it before Jesus in prayer, saying, Lord, have mercy, forgive me, strengthen me. And he's faithful, and he's, he's loving, and he's gentle, and he rescues us from our places of hypocrisy. Which is why the Apostle Paul says to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And that's what happens in confession is that the, the, the spotlight is put on the places of darkness in our life. And that sin is one of those things that, that flourishes in darkness. It, it grows and, and festers in darkness. But when it is exposed to the light of Christ, that it retreats, that it, it doesn't perform well in the light. And so that's what we try to do. We try to put our, our sin and our hypocrisy into the light of Christ to illuminate it. But then also we put that sin in the light of others as we confess to one another. And one thing that I, I found in pastoral ministry is that quite often when, when people are, are struggling with, with some sort of private sin, some sort of place of hypocrisy in their lives, there can be the sense of, all right, I, I feel bad about it. I'll pray about it. I'll take it to the Lord. But I can deal with this. Just, just me and Jesus alone can deal with this, this problem. And then often at root of that is we don't want the shame or the embarrassment of having to admit our sin to others around us. Because we think, well, what would they think of it? It will change their opinion. And so, and so we, we tell the lie to ourselves that, that we can get our secret sin pattern under control on our own without the embarrassment of anyone else knowing us. And then over time, we won't be hypocrites because we'll actually have overcome it and no one will think less of us because we've actually managed to master it. But that's not what we, what we see. That we shouldn't be like the, I mean, I, I was thinking about this illustration and it doesn't really work with the invention of GPS, but you know, the, this, the stereotypical man before GPS who will not ask for directions, you know, by golly, I will be able to make it. I will figure out where I am. I do not need to stop and ask anyone. And that's what we do spiritually, where I can figure this out. But James says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That, that part of the healing of our sin comes in the confession of sin. Yes, to the Lord. But also, he says, to one another. Confess your sins to one another. And that doesn't necessarily mean standing up in front of the church and confessing every sin. And there's a place for public confession. But, it, but it's saying that, that trying to deal with our own inner patterns of sin is hard and it rarely works. 
And so my advice for, for everyone, and this is true for you, it's true for me, is to have people in our lives whom we trust, who love the Lord, who are people that we can go to with those places of, of secret sin, where we can bring those, those things to, to light. And of course, we have to be careful, because part of the point of the sermon is that there is hypocrisy in the church. And so there are times when you will confess your sin to someone, when you'll bring it to light, and they'll use it against you in some way, or they'll respond in, in judgment rather than in grace. And so just because you confess in the church doesn't mean that, that the church will always respond in the way that it ought to respond, that sometimes the church itself will respond to your confession of sin hypocritically, which is a sin for the church itself. But yet, as your pastor, that I'm always here to listen to what you're struggling with. If you don't talk to me, there are so many wise, godly men and women in this church who would listen to you and in the places. And, and so for some, it might even mean getting professional counseling, being regularly with somebody who is trained in working through deep patterns of sin or addiction, and as somebody who, who also loves the Lord, who knows the Lord, but who can walk with you with that sense of professional training in some area. And so again, if, if that is something that you feel like you might need, talk to me about it. I can connect you with people and, and never let finances be the obstacle to, to getting counseling with somebody who loves the Lord. Uh, that, that well, that's one thing we're committed to as a church of, of caring for the people who God brings in our doors and getting the care and support that people need. But frankly, I think this is where the church has often failed. Because what we communicate consciously or unconsciously to the world around us is that we, the church, are the good people. Those out around us are the bad people. And so what people need to do is they come into the church, hang out with the good people, and then slowly they become the good people like we are the good people. And that message is antithetical to the gospel. That is completely opposed to the message of Christ. That, that the Bible says that we are all the bad people. Christ is the good person. And that the call for every single one of us is to repent of our sins and to trust in Jesus every single day to look to his grace, his mercy. And so for the way, the way to avoid hypocrisy is not to become a perfect person in this life. Yes, we strive to serve the Lord more and more. But the way and the starting place for dealing with hypocrisy is, is not pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps, but by admitting our true spiritual condition, admitting our true spiritual cancer, bringing that to Christ, humbling ourselves before God and before others. And so that's my prayer for hope, that, that we would be a church of sinners, of people who know that they are sinners, and a church that constantly repents to God, repents to each other, humbles ourselves before God and, and one another, and a church that genuinely believes in the grace of God, where we know the grace of God for ourselves, that we have experienced the grace to cover our sin, to cover our shame, and therefore that we are willing and able to extend that grace to others when they bring places of sin to us, where when somebody confesses their sin, we know that we are no different, that we can't claim any superior moral ground above others. 
But when the church stops believing in the grace of God, when the, the church turns the grace of God into law, that what happens is that sin doesn't disappear, but that sin goes underground. And that when sin goes underground, it grows and it flourishes. And eventually the sin that goes underground erupts into some public scandal. And that eventually tears down a church, tears down a congregation, ruins uh, the, the witness of the, cry of the church to the watching world. And so, again, our cause to believe in the grace of God, to experience the grace of God, to know the grace of God, to extend the grace of God to ourselves, to those around us. But then as we wrap up today, you'll notice that as it moves into chapter 21, that, that, that Jesus, as he's teaching, he looks up and he sees an example of hypocrisy, an example of sincerity right before him. And I think that we miss this connection often because we're moving from one chapter to another. But look at the verse 1 of chapter 21. It says, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Now, according to most commentaries, Within the temple, there was a court called the Court of the Women. And within that court, there were these 13 large boxes where people could put in gifts and offerings. And that the, the, on top of them, the way that you would put it in is there was a, a trumpet-shaped receptacle. And you would drop your coin into the, the trumpet-shaped metal entry point, And it would clatter and make its way down into the, the box below. And so if you were in this court, you would see people coming in and out, putting their, their gifts into the offering boxes. And so when uh, somebody came in to uh, contribute their tithe to the church, if they were wealthy, then you can imagine this, this big bag of heavy coins, of gold and silver, and, and they take it and they pour it into the trumpet-shaped box. And and it clatters and clanks all the way down. And so there's this a, a, a loud racket for the large gifts. And so you clearly know and see who's giving a lot and who's giving a little. And then the, the people look and say, wow, look at these people giving this, this vast amount of, of wealth. They must be holy. They must be, be generous. So these are the people. Let's put their name on the, the pew. Let's put a plaque in the, in the lobby to commemorate their gift. Let's name the, the retreat center after them. Let's uh, put them up on, on a pedestal as the ones who uh, our building project went forward because of this enormous gift from this, this generous person. But then Jesus doesn't pay attention to the people who put in the large sums of money, but he points out the widow who comes and places two small copper pennies, which was in a minuscule amount, wouldn't have made hardly any sound. It was, it was so light going down into the, the trumpet box. No one would pay attention. It's not going to make any difference for the work of, of God at the temple because it's such a small amount. But then you can see the irony that Jesus had just been saying, watch out for the scribes because they are the ones who devour widows' houses. 
And then here comes a widow into the temple giving her very last pennies, all that she has to live on to the Lord. And you could debate, did she have to give all of it? No. I mean, would, would, there, would there have been anything wrong with her taking those and trying to buy some bread? No. But, but what we see from here is this, this sense of complete and utter dependence on the providential care of God. And that's what, what Jesus is saying. He says, don't be like the scribes. Don't be like the religious hypocrites, despite all the external good and show. But he says, be like the poor widow who gave something so small that no one noticed. But yet she gave everything that she had, trusting the providential care of God. And as we reflect on our lives, it's unlikely that God will call you to give 100% of your income away to the poor. Could be possible. Um, but as you hear that, that's not to let us off the hook. Oh, good. I don't have to give away 100% of what I have. I can go home feeling good today. But, but actually, the demand here is far higher. That the, the widow's heart was holy for the Lord, that she was giving 100% of everything she has to the Lord, fully and utterly invested in him. And that's our call as well, to give 100% of ourselves, 100% of our lives to God. And that is the complete opposite of hypocrisy, that we say, I have time today, but my time isn't the Lord, is the Lord's. My time is not my own time. And so can I really use my time just to serve myself or or to, to spend my time just, just surfing the internet? Is that how I want to spend the time that doesn't belong to me, but I want to use it all to serve God, to serve my neighbor? Or you say, I have money today, but my money doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. So how can I use the, the money that I have not to serve my own desire, my own comfort, but to pour it out fully to the Lord? Or you say, I have talents today, but your talents aren't from yourself. It's not something... That, that you earned or something you deserved. And so rather than, than taking all of your talent and, and wasting it, just consuming mindless entertainment, saying, no, I'm going to use the gifts and the talents that God has, has given to me. I'm going to be active in the world and service of the Lord. And that's where we see that, that it's more than just avoiding hypocrisy. That the way to avoid hypocrisy is not just to avoid sin, but to positively serve the Lord with 100% of who we are, to keep nothing hidden, nothing away, to pour it all out for him, knowing that, that he himself poured out everything for us on the cross. Because that's what we see, that, that the widow gives everything, trusting the providential care of God, but that Jesus himself gives everything, trusting the providential care of his Father. As he left the glory of heaven to take on a true human nature, taking, going under the law, giving up all of the outward glory, ultimately going to the cross where he, he bore the shame and on the cross took our hypocrisy on himself, took our sin on himself, took the, the wrath of God that our sin and our hypocrisy deserves. And so when we repent, when we trust in Jesus, that's what we saw in our assurance of pardon, that, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus that the, the law of life has, has set us free from sin and death, and that we can then serve God not in fear of judgment, not in a sense that we have to hide our sin, because we know there is no condemnation. We can be open book before God. We can be an open book before our neighbor uh, because there, there's nothing to lose because we are washed clean, washed white in the blood of Christ. 
to serve, to give 100% of ourselves in true sincerity, knowing his providential care for us today.